everyone, and welcome to So Very Wrong About Games, the podcast where content is king, but we're more of a constitutional oligarchy. With me is my dear friend, the hype machine, Michael Walker. How are you doing, Walker? Fantastic, Mark. How are you this week? I'm very well, thank you. I am the Prophet of Rage, your co-host, Mark Bigney, also known as Bigney Smalls. And we are going to talk about board games this week. We're going to talk about the games we played last week. We're going to talk about the news and why it doesn't matter. And then we are going to talk about our feature game. Our feature game this week is The Great Wall. Some say they have seen better, but I think it's pretty great. Walker, what did you play last week? Mark, we got to play a game called Dark Ages Heritage of Charlemagne. Charlie Mags? Charlie Mags. Caruli Maguni? The big chuckaroo. Carlos Grande? One and the same. This is designed by Adam Kapinski and Andre Novak, put out by Board and Dice. So this is sort of a Civ-like game. You are sort of advancing your city along, you're building farms and production facilities, and you're trying to spread out and block off parts of the map and make sure you have good production, bringing religion to the land, building churches, all sorts of fun stuff. Very beautiful game. What do you think? It was pretty thoroughly mediocre. I do appreciate the framing. I just want to start right off the bat. We have this idea about the Dark Ages. Certainly, people in the West have a certain association of what those periods were like in Europe. And it's largely a fictitious one. You know, it wasn't the case. Now, there was lots of regression taking place. I'm a philosopher, and someone who cares about the history of philosophy, yeah, a lot of knowledge was lost and indeed preserved by the Arab world. But that was happening during that period anyway. So, I mean, granted, largely it was in, it was in currency in the Arab world, and then there were some monasteries in Scotland and Ireland that kept them and then didn't dis- disseminate any of this information. So it wasn't like it was totally lost to Europe, which is mostly lost to Europeans. But during that period, there were lots of interesting stuff happening. There was technological progress. There was lots of cultural uh, intermingling with people from the Arab world and people from uh, the Far East and et cetera, et cetera. So I do appreciate the fact they tried to make a semi-cosmopolitan looking look of Europe during the so-called Dark Ages, which in practice were, although not necessarily as shining as other ages, not necessarily as dark as the title would lead you to believe. So I appreciate that. The gameplay has some potentially clever bits. In practice, it kind of shakes out the way you've played a bunch of different games before. There's a somewhat complicated economic system married on to a military system, married on to a system of buying toys. And that's typically what you see in Civ-like games, not necessarily in the same tradition of Francis Tresham Civ, but in the tradition of Sid Meier Civ. And it was all right. I mean, the toys you buy aren't that much fun. Uh, the military system, although clean and decent, you're mostly fighting NPCs. The game seems to end just at the time when you might start mixing it up with everyone else, which is fine, because generally speaking in games where you have a somewhat elaborated economic system and a system whereby you can punch someone and steal all their toys, the person who can punch you and steal your toys tends to predominate anyway. Uh, but at the end of the day, I felt it was a little more plotting than it needed to be, and I wasn't really getting anywhere. I'd rather play a game like Mosaic. I'd rather play a game like Antica. I'd rather play a game like Eclipse, frankly. There were some feel-bad moments akin to those moments in Eclipse because you're fighting a lot of NPCs, and early on in the game, you're forced to, to pick fights that are kind of on a knife edge in terms of probability. That seems to be what Dark Ages kind of pushes you towards doing. And in particular, of the three people at the table... Two had much better luck in the early game against Barbarians, and one had very, very poor luck, even though we were picking the same fights. And so that wasn't terribly satisfying. What did you think of Dark Ages? I was going to say, I was going to just add on to what you said, because it plods along like that. So when you do 
which we didn't have very many, but if we did start fighting each other, then that wasted whole turn would, would, you know, put that person up by two, that one person goes Absolutely. down one, that other person goes up by one difference of two. And that would be just a huge swing that would only start snowballing because now that person, you know what I mean? It, that it would, yeah. yeah, it would just keep Later on in the game, I really like the military system. There's this notion of different troops firing at different times, troops having different technology levels, and all that's really neat. And the battle resolution is very clean and I think reasonably compelling. But at the very early part of the game, where hits are rare and actions few, a side that gets a couple of fluky hits can really set the opponent back several turns. I really loved how the buildings sort of added on to your combat ability. They get you re-rolls, and I like how it helped out how you fought. Oh, the forts, yes. Yeah. Yeah, a lot of the things that you build are nice. A lot of the toys that you get are nice. A lot of it seems artificially slow, though. I mean, there's a potentially okay action selection mechanism that didn't really shake out to be of much interest. There's this idea, not entirely unlike Kalamala, in Dark Ages, where if you're at the bottom of the stack after an action's been taken enough times, you get to do a reaction. In practice, though, the tempo just shook out that only one player really did a lot of that, which which was fine, whatever. But... An individual action lets you do hardly anything at all. And that made Dark Ages feel slower than it actually was. And so that contributed to the sense of pacing and, and just generally the idea that we that it was three hours to three and a half hours where not much happens. Yeah, there's a lot of tech cards too. And someone that has played before, I think, will get an advantage because some cards like are much more powerful than others because there's not huge amounts of victory points. So if someone passes and gets 11 victory points every time they pass, yes, it really, you know, throws a sort of wrench in the system and it doesn't, you know, work out for the other players. Absolutely. There's also a cousin game to Dark Ages Heritage of Shahamang, which is the Dark Ages Byzantine Empire edition. And in theory, if you really wanted to, in case a three-player game wasn't slow enough for you, you can blow it up into an eight-player game <laughs> and combine the two maps. No, thanks. How about no? Yes. No. I tried Dark Ages a few months ago in the solo version, but I found the AI a little bit too ponderous to execute. And indeed, multiplayer was similarly ponderous, but at least was a little more straightforward in terms of just executing my own actions. Some interesting stuff there. And I tried it largely on the base of Adam Kropinski, but I think for me, Adam Kropinski has now definitely been solidified as a wait-and-see designer. Despite our enthusiasm for Lords of Hellas, which Kropinski designed, it was really, I think, the case that his subsequent designs have... Uh, the only other design that he's done that I think I can really get behind is Terracotta Army. He's also done Nemesis, which was not to our taste at all, and this is another near miss. And so I think, uh, for me, Adam Kopinski may be a one-hit wonder, unfortunately. Is, the, is this new Lords of Ragnarok? Is that uh, Adam Kopinski as well? It is. Oh, well, then we'll, we'll have to find out. Well, we, we will. We will. Andre oh. Novik also did a 4X game, which was also very, very much not to my taste. So in hindsight, it is perhaps not surprising that this particular collaboration didn't please me. Although, as you pointed out, the board and dice production is very, very nicely done. Uh, the components were nice. The historical touches were nice. Uh, I, I appreciated some of the components. There were lots of nice little plastic bits, but not in the sense of being an overwhelming box chock full of plastic, overwhelming the experience. And so I thought it was a reasonably good balance, both in terms of cost and economy. So it was Dark Ages, Heritage of Chalamet. I just want to briefly note that I had a couple of very, very joyous experiences of Horizons of Spirit Island. This is one of those occasions where a friend of mine characterized some of my complaints as they're saying, oh, you just don't want to be the game daddy anymore. And it's, it's true. Sometimes you have to be the game daddy. You're explaining the game or what have you. But in a couple sessions, 
all with players who'd played before, all all the players who knew how Spirit Island worked. And so it was just an utter breeze. The, the game rules, despite the fact that Spirit Island is a very rules-heavy game in a lot of ways, they kind of fell away and you were just directly interfacing with the pieces. And I really appreciate those experiences. Sometimes they're few and far between. I wish I had more time to devote more sessions to the games that to, to go back to the ones that I truly adore. But in the case of Spirit Island, fortunately, it's popular enough that that is able to be done. Went back to the two... Spirits from Horizons of Spirit Island that I really like, specifically Eyes Watch from the Trees and Mud Otter. Mud Otter was able to obliterate the Russians through a laser beam of what I assume was glowing slimy mud, which, you know, history. Tracks. Absolutely. <laughs> that was Horizons of Spirit Island. Speaking of games that felt like a breeze, we got to get Key Flower back to the table. And even though we had to teach one player, it still flowed perfectly well. It was yet another fantastic game. Just the core game, which I think is one of these things you always fall back to anyway. Which I'm sure we're going to talk about one day soon is why some expansions are awful. <laughs> That's awful's a strong word, Walker. <laughs> So this is designed by Sebastian Bleasdale and Richard Breeze, put out by R&D Games, and it's one of our favorite auction-type games. You have all these different colored meeples, and once you start putting meeples on a particular tile, for whatever reason, either to activate it or to bid to bring it into your village, then that color is set on that type of villager. And then you build your village, and you can, I guess, invade or sort of take over... <laughs> I don't know what would, you, what would you call it. You sort of visiting. You, you visit other, <laughs> you visit other people's villages, but then they get your meeples. Yeah, so they visit very, for a while. very interesting scoring conditions. You get the tiles uh, for the whole game, and then you can decide how you want to either put them out in the last, you know, auction or not. Love everything about Keyflower. It's one of those action selection games where none of the things you do with your workers is particularly fascinating. And I think that's one of the reasons why it's surprisingly approachable in terms of rules load. But the dynamics of the economy, even with round one, but especially round two and later, where you can activate your own places, you can activate neutral places on the hopes that you'll get them, activate neutral placement uh, places knowing that you won't, going in quote-unquote visiting, or if you're Walker, apparently these were violent invasions. I This is news to me. I need to pay more attention to what he's doing with his meeples when we're playing Keyflower again. Is that what you were whispering to them before you would put them on my tiles? Kill everyone. Oh my goodness. Keyflower is a delight, and I really do like the interleaved auction and action system. It hasn't really been copied in any other Euro game that I'm aware of, and it's thoroughly compelling. In my head, Keyflower is one of those paradigmatic games that is simultaneously too short and too long. Walker, you agree with half of that. Why don't you explain why? Well, I, I, what I was thinking is last game, because it's always the same feeling when you get into that first round. You're auctioning for the tiles, and then your brain sort of just switches into that, like every other game where there's going to be this activate your village type, uh, you know, phase. But it's not. It's just going to go immediately right into another auction, and you have to decide whether or not to use those meeples to activate tiles in your own village or other people's village, and to now bid on these new tiles that are out there. So it's just this constant pressure of, of where to use your resources. I definitely agree. Another way that some people, including myself, sometimes feel that Keyflower feels a little too short is that 
you don't really gather that many tiles. You don't really develop your village that much. That said, typically a winning score will see the majority of your village tiles upgraded, if not all of them. The, the sense in which it's too long, though, is just I remember bluntly in terms of clocking the minutes, it tends to feel a little bit longer than it wants to be, especially given the relative lack of visible progress. But with five players, one of them entirely new, it took us less than two hours, which is not what I expected. I had expected it to be slightly in excess of two hours, two hours that I would have happily spent, but I was surprised by the length. So I'm going to, I might have to recalibrate my expectations of the length of a game of Keyflower. Sure. I think it was just because we nicely delegated all of the jobs. Like we had one person That's know, putting out the meeples, one person doing the tools, one person putting out the proper tiles. With those delightful geek up bags. Oh, that was gorgeous. Oh, the Love geek, them. The geek up bags are very, very nice. I have them also for root. They are... They're just so pleasant to feel. I feel like I go to sleep on one of them. And that is Keyflower by R&D Games. Played another game of Spots. This is a review copy sent to us by the publisher. Spots is by Alex Haig, John Perry, and Justin Vickers. So the same people who brought you collectively and severally Airland and Sea and Time Burns, which we'll talk about later, as well as Wavelength and Monikers. And so it's unsurprising, given that sort of heritage, that it is a delightful, whimsical game. It's a dice game involving all dogs, certainly all dogs. Doog may look like a cow, but that's just your eyes playing tricks on you. Doog is totally a dog. And I really like the fact that there are a plurality of different sets of actions that you can use in every game. In the, in the There's a whole bunch of different tiles that determine how many dice you roll, where the dice come from, whether you get re-rolls, etc., etc., and I've really enjoyed going through the different dice sets. They feel very different in terms of which ones are available. We had one that was very long on risk in surprising ways. And since it is a push-your-luck game, navigating those fields of risk is indeed one of the interesting parts of navigating the different action sets and spots. And I've been having a joy with it. We got to get Gatefall back to the table. This is designed by Jack Dyer and put out by Jack Dyer Studios. Nepotism again. It's a I shame. know, right? Yeah. This is another fantastic skirmish game that really gives me the sort of undaunted feel where it's like just so smooth, so much game, so easily sort of like a card uh, driven system where you get to upgrade your units. You get to sort of force people in and out of, you know, territories, threaten areas like everything about Gatefall. And I'm really, I think it's sort of in a position left by the table that I think we might get back to it more often in the near future. I like Gatefall. I wouldn't give it that high praise. When I'm playing a game like Undaunted, I really feel like I'm seeing a whole bunch of clever innovation and a whole bunch of subtle trade-offs in terms of card manipulation. Gatefall, to me, exists in a much more simpler plane of I move my plastic next to your plastic, now I smash, which is fine. No, but it's the sort of the upgrade part where you have many choices. Either you're going to thin your deck, you're going to upgrade your people, or you're going to, you know... And those are the three choices, yeah. As opposed to, well, just let, let's just take that on its terms. As compared I, to Undaunted. I I, I, I'm not saying it's exactly like Undaunted. <laughs> it, it gives me the vibes. I respect that. <laughs> but in Undaunted, the way you might modify your deck is you play a card. First of all, you didn't play that card for initiative. And secondly, you then play that card and you decide instead of using the other effects on that card, you instead use it to get more cards into your deck. And then you have to decide which cards you want based on the map situation. As opposed to Gatefall, which is kind of a card-driven deck builder skirmish game, where when you buy a new card, you pay your four coins, you take the top card off the deck, it's either a one or two or heal, and there you go. Much, much simpler, and I find the quality of decision-making to be comparatively simple as well. That's fine. 
One of the reasons why it's fine is I do like the spectacle. And it's got a very, very long board. But the miniatures are so huge, referred to as the Hunverker's bigatures, that you can still see detail, minute detail of the figure when it's way across the table, which is not something I think I've ever experienced in another comparable skirmish game before. And despite the level of miniatures there, we're not talking about a $100 box for the base game. It was recently up on Kickstarter for a reprint. The base game is well south of 70, and you can even get a standee version, which I couldn't help but notice only a small number of people pledged for. <laughs> but if you want a smaller version, you can have a smaller version. It is considerably cheaper. We played with the Lost in the North Woods expansion, which was the product of the Kickstarter before that. So there are now three factions. Many, many more factions are planned. You don't really engage in army building much. You have four units and you pick three of them. But at the end of the day, I'm still in favor of a system whereby, you know, you've got a bunch of action points, you decide where to spend them, I roll my five dice against your four dice, and miraculously you came out unscathed, but that's okay, and we keep moving. It's all right, but I, I, I'm I happy to play Gatefall Lost in North Woods. I applaud the fact that it is simultaneously an act of grotesque excess in the sense that the miniatures are huge. Seriously, you have to see them in real life to believe them standard humans are represented by things that, are, that would dwarf many kingdom death monster bosses, let alone any other kind of human-sized miniature. Uh, but at the end of the day, I think the decision-making we're talking about here is roughly on or sub-heroscape level. It's true. If you have like any sort of mannequins in your garage, <laughs> I'm sure they could stand in. You could print and play your own copy of Gatefall. Yeah, sure. <laughs> so that was Gatefall, specifically the Lost in the North Woods expansion. Designed and published by Jack Dyer. Walker, I've seen the future. Have you? Are, there, ba are there barons in the future? Uh, well, no. Uh, well, okay, we'll talk about time. I, I, that was a segue for something else. Though. I'm sorry. You stepped on my I, segue. I, I tried to sort of, you know, engage in your segue. <laughs> okay, well, it, yes. I've seen the future in multiple aspects, and one of them, I am a baron in the future. <laughs> gotcha. <laughs> time Barons is a game designed by John Perry and Derek Yu, sent to us by the designer. And Time Barons, I've just compared before to a sort of stripped-down innovation. Faster, leaner, directly more cutthroat. You're not scoring points here or trading off tucking versus splaying versus other things. In Time Barons, the only thing you're doing is you're either recruiting followers or you're destroying your opponent's followers. Sometimes you have to move your followers around to activate abilities, and that part's very interesting. But at the end of the day, the victory conditions are very, very straightforward. It is structured like a card battler, but doesn't feel like one. Again, it feels a lot more like a tableau builder. And nonetheless, it is very, very redolent in some of those simple, straightforward decisions that I associate with a lot of other John Perry games. Uh, they're simple and straightforward, but they're full of lots of trade-offs, and there's a lot of tension baked in. And Time Barons, although not as refined or minimalistic as some of his other work, like Spots even, but certainly like Airland and Sea, or like Scapegoat, it nonetheless makes up for that in terms of sheer pugilistic abandon. <laughs> yeah. so. We played with the alternate deck this time, which is even more punch your opponent in the face. Oh, yes. Like silliness. Like you said, the cards are nice and easy to grok at a distance. They put them out. You know what the, you know, you know what the cards do. You know which ones you need to target. You understand what you need to do, even if it's your first game. I love everything about Time Barons. Glad you introduced me to it. Yeah, Time Barons is really shockingly fun. It is. Mark, what's the alternate timeline that you were talking about? No, it wasn't an alternate timeline. It but it is now. This is one. This was one oh? future, and now you're going to talk about another future. Oh, okay. All right, Lightspeed. Lightspeed, the game designed by James Ernest and Tom Jolly, initially published by Cheap Ass Games in 2003. 
is a two-player real-time game where you're putting out the spaceships, and it is literally a game of geography, whereby the picture of the laser beam extends off into infinity, and if it hits another card that just gets slapped out on the table, it gets hit. There's an initiative system, and you just play the cards in real time, and then after all the cards have been played, or after a certain time limit has expired, you figure out which lasers hit and when. And so if my initiative one ship blasts your initiative three ship out of the sky before it gets a fire, it's dead, and so the timing really matters. Now... Lightspeed is a game I very much enjoy. I prefer the version called Stellar Conflict, which is the republished four-player version by Artipia Games with Special Powers, but uh, Lightspeed is nonetheless a thoroughly delightful game. It suffers from a certain problem that a number of other excellent games do, and that is that the scoring takes longer than the actual playing of the game. Like Fantasy Realm. Like Fantasy Realm, like Space Alert as well. But... Here comes Tablescope Games. Tablescope Games is an Austrian company currently occupied by a, a bunch of Italian designers, and they have introduced a way to automate the scoring of light speed, complete with graphic effects, uh, turn by turn, and with a summary of what happens, whereas you get to see a little picture of your ship blasting the other ship out of the sky, and then you see exactly what happens. This also allows them to introduce effects that you could not do in a non-app-assisted game. Other, uh, there's an asteroid that you can play with, and if that asteroid is in play, Shields no longer absorb laser beams, but reflect them at the exact angle of incidence. This would not be executable with just using your little rubber bands for line of sight, but the app can handle it well. Currently, it is a beta. It is a bot within the Telegraph messaging app. I found it very, very simple to install and get running. And I played a few games of Lightspeed, and I thoroughly enjoyed it. And it is very easy to see what happened and when. And it resolves the entire battle over the course of five to ten seconds. You just scroll through the pictures and you see exactly what happened. It is reminiscent of the scoring app that I've talked about a number of times with respect to Imperium. Imperium, the Civ building, deck building game, where scoring can be not as long as the game itself, but sometimes rather tedious and very calculational. That just takes a picture of all your cards in your tableau, a picture of all the cards in your history, etc., and then automatically scores them by parsing the, the, the cards, very much like how the, the light speed version being put up by Tablescope parses the special cards they've designed. And I see the future. This is the way in which I want games to be app-assisted, right? I don't really care all that much for for cumbersome score-keeping apps when the scoring is just as simple as adding up 42, 36, and 17. Like that, yeah, it can be tedious, but it's not like, you know, 10 minutes tedious, and I like, don't want to have to pull out the app and do the whole thing. Anyway, I would love to see a future. I don't think we'll ever see it, because Space Alert, for in, as, as an example, is already a reasonably elder game. But a version of Space Alert, where you play the game, and then an app takes a picture of all the played cards and then animates what happens. And you see the various threats advancing in your spaceship and you see someone hitting the button. You see this, the, the, the ship go dark because nobody wiggled the mouse. You see someone having to go take the ladder or tumbling down the access chute because it's been made out of order. That is something I would love to see. But I'm very, very happy to see already it is a proof of concept in a comparatively simpler game like Lightspeed. So hats off to Tablescope. You can go to tablescopegames.com and find their print-and-play versions of Lightspeed to be used with their Telegraph bot. I highly recommend giving it a shot, and I, for one, am very pleased with the progress so far. That's Lightspeed. Lastly, for me, is the game that we streamed on Saturday, Teletum. This is designed by Simone Luciani and Danielle Tetsini and put out by Board and Dice. And it is a very interesting sort of maneuver your pieces around, see what the upcoming scoring objectives are, get your pieces in place, and 
get built up for even like abandon. I'm going to not going to score in phases two and three, but I'm going to make sure I got big scores in one and four. There was someone that even did like Dr. Handsome strategy where they did nothing for the whole beginning of the game and just amassed a ton of resources. So in the last two rounds, they could just do whatever they wanted. It's kind of an interesting parallel. It's kind of like going to med school and just (laughs) having a lot of education, then just bursting out and doing something very consequential. Let us call it the Dr. Handsome strategy. Just so. And I'm, I'm enjoying it more I play it. I've played it about three or four times now, and I enjoy it more and more every time. Looking forward to more plays of Teletum. I'm glad it's getting its hooks in you. I might try it again. It seemed a little uh, little bland. It's very minimalistic. I Like, when I went back to the rules, I saw how... how I thought it was just, I, I thought it was either having an on day or whatever. It's like, this, <laughs> this, this is just what it does. You, you pick a die, you get the resources and you get the action points and you do the thing. And I think with a group of people that have played it before, it is, it could be a very fast game. There's only four turns. I think you'd be able to get through it in less than an hour. I really oh, it's do. true. It's, it, it's comparatively straightforward when compared to a lot of the other output of Luciani and Tashini. The only bit that I remember being a little bit thorny was the whole issue of recruiting and where people go and how and which bonuses trigger when. But other than that, you're right. It's a very, very straightforward iteration of the, of the concept. Finally, for me, tried Summoner Wars 2nd Edition. I've been very curious about Summoner Wars 2nd Edition. I played the 1st Edition a fair number of times with a lot of different factions. Summoner Wars is designed by Colby Dotch at Plat Hat Games. It is indeed the reason why Plat Hat Games exists. Colby Dotch was involved in the development of some of the later Heroescape sets, and it was one of his first projects after becoming independent, designing this sort of card battler, kind of sort of Magic the Gathering meets maybe a skirmish type thing, but using only cards. And so you put out units, which are cards, on this relatively parsimonious grid and move them around and fight things. There were a number of odd little bits about first edition that kept me from really diving into the system. Summoner Wars is a bit of a lifestyle game for a lot of gamers, and I can kind of see why, but the second edition really has improved on the idea in a, in a host of different ways. Number one, some of the problematic events have been removed. Number two, the economy is much simpler. Number three, it's re- removed perverse incentives. And number four, it has helped to grapple with one of the fundamental problems with skirmish games since time immemorial, ranged units being better than they should be. (laughs) They've managed to solve that in particular by using custom dice where ranged units hit less often than melee units, which is a great way because before the only way you could do it is just the number of combat dice. That was a very, very blunt way to differentiate the lethality of units. And I was very, very impressed. So Summoner Wars is distributed in, in a number of ways. You can get a master set with six different factions, or you can get the starter set, which has two different factions that are not in the master set. It's a very, very cheap product. We're talking about like 20 bucks Canadian after discount if you want the starter set for two players. And then there are separate decks that are sold separately. And you can also engage in deck building if you're so inclined, deck construction that is, but you don't have to. I'm really impressed. I think that Summoner Wars 2nd Edition has done a great job of improving upon a solid foundation. They've been going like gangbusters, reprinting as many of the factions as they could. They're already at a state where Summoner Wars 2nd Edition is arguably more robust than the 1st Edition was in terms of sheer variety of units. And in a universe where the distribution models of a lot of skirmish-type games are relying on a lot of the degenerate, old-style, decrepit, I would say borderline exploitive models of miniatures games, tabletop miniatures game systems. I really appreciate the more minimalistic, affordable model that Summoner Wars has. I'll be talking a lot more about that in the future, but more on that later in the news. And so I'm very pleased that Summoner Wars has managed to keep all the good stuff and excise a lot of the chaff, and I want to see 
how more of the factions work and see more different kinds of fights. That's Summoner Wars 2nd Edition. Those are the games we played this week. Now on to the news and why it doesn't matter. I only have two pieces of news, Mark, but a few observations. All right. I.e. first observation, embargoes are dumb. (laughs) You really don't like embargoes. I read the news. Yeah. And then I see that I can't say anything about it. Yep. And then I close it and I forget about it. <laughs> and then it never gets said. So so, so no news for them. Sure. There was a advertisement for a role-playing game. And it says, this game lets you play out scenarios from the TV series. I'm like, it's a, it's a role-playing game. You can do whatever you want. <laughs> Featuring recognizable characters and locations. And I'm just like... I just, it's just like, what, what are they? Anyway, moving on. Well, it's weird. Some people want, okay. Are you talking about an embargo thing? No. This okay, is, good. This is, this is on to the next. <laughs> okay. What, what was the property was, question? Okay. It was, it's a, it's a, it was an ad for the walking dead role-playing game. It says, lets you play out scenarios from the TV series. I'm just huh. like, you can play out scenarios from whatever you want. It's yeah. It's a freaking role-playing game. Yeah. It's weird. I mean, I guess. It seemed odd. These it, just, it, when, when I read things and they seem odd. It's certainly not the way that I would approach role-playing games if if you want to recreate a specific scene like settings sure characters sure look and i have no problem with that but like using that as your like main tagline yeah just anyway it does seem odd there's going to be a new a new uh dark crystal card game and so i've written down why does everything associated with the dark crystal have to be crap (laughs) how do you know the card game's crap because it looks awful okay (laughs) so real news now Okay, so like we said, we we, we crap on things. And we do, so when, both when, of us? When, when things are good, we have to make sure we say them. So yes. we got a copy of Hamlet. It was missing some pieces. I sent uh, a message, and in less than a week, I got a shipping notice for the replacement parts. Oh, good for them. Mighty Boards, great job. Thanks, Mighty Boards. So, Walker, you've been outraged. I love your outrage. Our listeners love your outrage as well. I am outraged on your behalf, because we all know... Deep in our hearts, what Great Western Trail is about. It is about aliens probing cows. It's true. This is a certainty. It is known. How dare they then, as the last act of the so-called Great Western Trilogy, seek to upend this entirely and make it in New Zealand and about sheep? Nobody wants to probe sheep, Walker. What alien would travel hundreds of thousands of light years to our planet to probe sheep? The very thought that an alien would engage in such behavior to probe sheep is manifestly absurd. Cows? Perfectly reasonable and understandable. Sheep? Nonsense. I am outraged. You don't mess with another man's sheep, Mark. We really like uh, Necromunda, and you like Mortenheim. There's a game... Conceptually. Conceptually, yes. So there's, yeah. a, there's a game coming out with a second edition called Gangs of Rome. So it's a 28 millimeter gang fighting skirmish game. Oh. And it seems really interesting. So you should, t- you should take a look at it. Everyone should take a look at it because it's very cool little sort of skirmishing. You even sell you the buildings and you make up these different gangs of, of Romans and they go around and beat each other up. It seems very interesting. I'm going to look at the rule book. What's the company? Foot Sore Miniatures. Finally, for me, this is an episode ending in five, and we don't like spending a whole lot of time plugging our Patreon, but every over a month or so, we do. 
I have been putting out episodes of Bloat. We're going to be have another episode of Pledge of Indifference, our Patreon-exclusive show about Kickstarter and other crowdfunding stuff that's been coming out this week. I'm also going to have an upcoming episode of Survey Wrong About All the Games I Like Are Bad about distribution of skirmish games, some of the skirmish games that I like but I feel are too expensive, and reconciling all this with, with cost. This is on top of the fact that Every week there's new bonus content. Every week there's unedited episodes. If you want ad-free versions of the episodes, you can get that too. All of that is available on our Patreon. Please check us out. Check it out if you're interested in supporting free media. Patreon.com slash swag. If there's any content creators that you enjoy, throw them a message. Throw distributors a message saying that, you know, a game that you heard on their show, you bought because you heard it from them. Reach out to people. Absolutely, Walker. Thank you. That is the news, and why it doesn't matter. On to our feature game. Our feature game this week is The Great Wall. The Great Wall is a 1-5 to with expansions worker placement game designed by Camille Sanix-Czesla, Robert Plesevitz, and Lukas Wodarczyk. Published by Awaken Realms, there have been a couple of rounds of successful crowdfunding for the, the original game and a reprint with a whole bunch of expansion modules. If you want to spend in excess of 300 euros on this game, you can. More on that later. Walker, why don't you give us an unhelpful summary about what one does in The Great Wall? So, in The Great Wall, it's most like other post-apocalyptic games where you're sort of working together, but you just can't, you know, <laughs> seem to work with those other generals, and you and you need to do your own thing. You know, we're going to defend China, but we're going to do it separately. We can't, <laughs> we can't work together. <laughs> Unified chain of command? Who ever heard of that? And it has this... Very... Are you saying that Lord Humongous is one of the generals in the Great Wall? Yes, just so. Didn't you see it? I saw the card. I saw no gasoline. Oh. Oh, wow. The guy with the silver face, you know? Yeah, Lord Humongous. Exactly. That's what the I'm Ayatollah of Rock and Rolla. You didn't see the figures? No, I didn't. The cars? I must have missed oh, it. Oh, that's expansion. I looked at the Kickstarter today. I was told that no one had to die, so I just walked away. There you go. So what you're doing is you're doing this interesting battle against other people technically to get victory points, but it's all laid over this sort of interesting defense game where you're doing this worker placement where it'll help other people to fill areas. It'll be interesting to, you know, uh, trigger areas before other people can get in. You are trying to snipe different cards, all sorts of different things. This is all the great wall. (laughs) <laughs> Very interesting game. Yeah, so the theming is simultaneously historical and yet not. They, they're they very clear in the introduction to the game that they've just fantasized a whole bunch of stuff. And not fantasized in the sense of and now the dragon comes, although you can kind of do that too. But more in the sense that, well, you know, we're going to abstract away and say that this is kind of just a generalized representation of using the Great Wall to defend against other people. <laughs> so uh, the history is very, very much with a, a, a thin veneer, which is kind of okay. I'm a little bit, I will say at the outset, I'm a little bit chagrined that this is once again a board game about the Far East, not made by Asians, that emphasizes things like honor and shame. You don't see Westerners design board games about the West that emphasize honor and shame, but the moment anything's set in Korea or China or Japan, it's all about shame and honor, which, I mean, it's a little tired at this point. I talked about this a lot when we were reviewing samurai battles, right? It's more clear in war games. Like, oh, well, you know, we have to have honor and shame here. It's like, what, honor and shame feature very prominently in Western wars as well. I don't know why you've decided to make it this way. Anyhow. But it's not as Orientalist as as a lot of other games that have been published. That's kind of damning with faint praise, though. 
that out of the way. The gameplay of the Great Wall. So it's something that we enjoy. It's sort of what we said about Oak. It is a a card system married to a worker placement. So you decide on what card you want to play. All the players put them face down. You flip them up and you start with number one, where one person is going to get to do the main action. All of the other people are going to be able to do a lesser part of that action. Yeah, it's kind of a role selection-esque system. It's all mostly putting out workers. And they are filling different areas of the map, and a lot of them won't trigger until they're completely filled. And it's mostly getting resources, building parts of the wall, uh, recruiting troops to defend against the hordes that are coming in, stuff like that. So, for example, one of the resource tracks might have four spaces for it. And I, I call it a worker placement game, but that's kind of a lazy designation. It's, it's a little more nuanced than that. Because, yes, there are four spaces, and each space will generate a wood and but the spaces will only execute once all those four spaces are filled. And then they all execute, and then they come back. So you're constantly engaged in a rotating series of activations. The game is, uh, a game of the Great Wall is very procedurally defined. There are lots of different phases to go through, and you have to go through them in order, and there are horde defeat checks every five seconds, and that's fine. But in terms of when various areas will activate, a lot of the interest is in there. And that dovetails to one of the things that I think the Great Wall does splendidly as compared to other worker placement games. Getting more workers is not an overarching priority necessarily, because if you're constantly engaging in turnover, you constantly get your workers back. Yeah, if, you, if you are aware of what's going on in the game and you can see what other people want and need, you can sort of dovetail into that and sneak your workers in and know you're going to get them back for your turn. Because a lot of a lot of the cards let you put out a varying amount of workers, so you want this constant flow of your workers to happen. Right. On the other hand, if you do have a worker advantage, you can let workers sit and wait for longer. So you do have some additional flexibility, but it is not an overarching part of the game as compared to a lot of other, even contemporary worker placement games where getting more workers is just an overwhelming fixation. And so I really appreciate how the novel element of worker placement has sidestepped that entire issue. So on the other hand, where you want to gain workers, in this game, you have a pool of soldiers that is going to slowly disappear because you use those pieces to do many other things. So as you collect resources or improve your income, you need to put figures on the track to to track that you track on the track mark yes and these have to come from your troops also like you said there is shame and you bring in these shame tokens and every shame token you have you have to designate a troop figure to that as well so the pieces that are available to you are slowly disappearing and you have to decide on how to do that yes overall though the gathering of resources and the placing of people uh plays second fiddle to the overall sorts of points, which are all focused around defense of the homeland. Because you can get points from building, but you build largely as, as the, the the defense needs grow. And you get points from murdering the horde that are coming and trying to murder you. And there you engage in another kind of almost ersatz worker placement game, where you have troops that get placed on cards that cover up various things and give you bonuses. Not entirely unlike some of the the, the details of, say, Dogs of War, where you're getting troops to cover specific parts of cards that get you specific bonuses. And this is where uh, another aspect of the Great Wall sidesteps a lot of problems. Because you, I think you were right to highlight, not necessarily the post-apocalyptic as- aspect. That I, I think I'm still missing that. No, I don't, I just meant the fact that a lot of... To, you just have to point it out to me again when, when we play next just time. A lot of those games 
or semi-co-op where yes, you know you you, you, absolutely. you all should be working towards the goal, but for some reason you can't. Yes. That's what I meant. The Great Wall does a great job of doing something that's kind of sort of semi-co-op. It's not really, it's not 1v all, there's no traitor, but at the end of the day, everyone cares to varying extent about how the defense of China is going and indeed where they care about defending more. And navigating those differing impulses and those different incentives is also a fascinating part of the game because that's where a lot of the victory points are going to come from. And so watching people, you know, giving up on one front of the war and overinvesting in another is just part of the evolving economy of the Great Wall. And I, th I find it very interesting and it works far, far better than a lot of other games that seek to have a common shared goal while exploiting player differences. I, was, I wanted to also to ask you about some of the worker pla placement because... There's some spaces that if you're the only person there, you you take on shame. Yes. And and do you think that will change what people choose? Because as as you know, you put them on in 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 a certain order. So if someone's gone to that spot, have you ever decided, well, I'm just not gonna go there, so they will accumulate shame tokens. I've been tempted and therefore to put yourself back. It's weird. So there are two broad categories of areas where you're uh, going to get shame in the worker placement aspect. One of them is resource generation. This works both thematically and mechanically. If you send all your clerks to a certain area, if you lock down wood and you make sure that nobody else ever gets to produce wood, well, that's bad. It's, you know, it doesn't look good for the shared defense. It also doesn't lead to a well-functioning game, and so you're going to get penalized for it, and so you're disincentivized to do it. The other worker placement area where you get shame for going in alone is recruiting troops. And that part has never... I've had some people try to explain it to me. It's never made any sense to me. It's like, I alone am now converting my personal wealth into soldiers for defense of the homeland. And because I'm there alone, I am full of shame. I, I don't have an answer. So there are these situations where some cards let you go there alone and not generate shame. That's fine. But there have been cases where I was inclined to go and recruit troops, but I look over and say, oh, Huey's there alone at the moment. Mm, do I want to give him that solid? Now, sometimes that just factors into the layers of collusion and the occasional bouts of cooperation that you have yeah, in the Great but, Wall, which I is mean, fine. Because it ties into the defense, like you're talking about, right. especially that that space. It's like you know that if if you're there and you help him, he's going to defend a certain part of the wall or help you back and help... Ideally, you know. yes. So it's this sort of give and take, which... Which is what I was trying to get to. Yeah, it works mechanically. Yes. But thematically, it strikes me as incredibly odd. Uh, I could easily see other spaces on the board working on that basis, uh, but they don't. So I, I think it was just a mechanical kludge. Uh, it doesn't make a whole lot of sense. Again, I think highlighting that this whole honor and shame fixation sometimes does games a disservice, independently of the fact that it smacks of Orientalism. So maybe they should have broadened their mindset a little bit. So another area where this sort of semi-co-op thing happens is when you're choosing the command cards because some of them key off of other cards and sometimes you can see what someone needs to do and you can try to guess on what card they're going to play because it says if you play if someone else has played des despotism then you get a special bonus on your card so there's an interesting sort of you know try to outthink what your opponent's going to play a little bit yeah a little bit you know it's just it's just a, a nice little bit of sauce on top of the action selection mechanism of, of the card placement. And some players, you get points, you're incentivized to leave your discard pile getting fatter and fatter of these action cards. And the people who do that, you have a better sense of what they're going to play because everyone has the same six action cards. And if someone's got four cards in the discard pile, well, it doesn't take our genius to figure out that they've only got a couple of options. 
Other people, on the other hand, who wish to remain more flexible will forego those point benefits and constantly have a mitt full of cards, and they might be the ones exploiting the comparative rigidity of their opponents. And I find that to be one of, you know, one of the interesting little trade-offs that, that dovetails into the action selection. And although you're right to, to highlight how it's similar in some ways to Oak in that there's, you know, the cards and the workers and they interact with each other, uh, the, the association here is on a far more broad level in that a given action card will let you put out a whole bunch of workers as well as letting your opponent opponents, as a rule, put out several as well. Yeah, wherever you want. Unlike Oak, where you're like locked down to where they're right. going to go. Right, right. There's a lot more flexibility, generally speaking, in what's going on, sure. which is fine. Speaking of generals, there are a ton of general cards, which is sort of your asymmetric power you're going to get at the beginning, and then there's these advisor cards, of which you get two at the beginning of the game and access to a bunch more during the game if you wish to, you know, lean into that direction. And sometimes the powers are interesting, but there's so many... I think it's a cool part of the game. You can either take the card, the advisor cards as yet an additional special ability or put it underneath the general and make his or her power that more powerful. That part is really cool. The way that advisors can be used in one of two ways is great. How they're fodder for the general's ability or an ability by themselves. I'm not terribly impressed by the level of apparent balance in the different generals and the different advisors, there seems to be... The advisors matters to be less, honestly, because yes, you dealt two at the beginning of the game, but you can pick one of the two, and then you can buy more as the game of the Great Wall goes on. And so there's a display, and you can pick the the, the better ones as they come up if, if you really want to. The generals, though, I've seen some games where I look at my two generals, and both of them seem vastly better than the two generals that somebody else gets. And of course, there's endless discussion online as to which generals are obviously too good or obviously too 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 bad. I don't have a firm opinion, but I'm not terribly impressed with the overall appearance of balance. And more on that in a minute when I start complaining about other aspects of the Great Wall. And then I hinted at it before, there's like sort of the building your income because there's two parts of the game that get you income. There's when you put out workers and there's an actual income phase. And both of these sort of dovetail in when you take income, you have a chance to uh, sort of... I guess, invest in that particular resource. And every time you take it, you'll get more. And then in the income phase, you'll get the same amount more again. In terms of production of resources, this isn't in terms of, of, of income, but the production of it, every time you produce resources on the production track, you have the option of donating a single good for the war effort. And that gives you points, rather a lot of points, quite frankly. And what that does is it further layers on to a notion of the sort of semi-cooperative nature of what's going on. I've donated a whole bunch of my resources to the building area. The next person who gets to build gets all of those resources for free, but pockets the points for that building. Now, am I going to benefit from what they build? Should I have gotten and built with those resources myself? Maybe, sometimes. These are all trade-offs that exist and again feed into this uh, semi-cooperative nature. And I find that a, a very, very simple economic model and one that pleases me a great deal. An interesting timing aspect, like when to you know take first player, when to take right. that building action, know when people are going to need resources and donate them. All of these things. Big you know decision space. Yeah, absolutely. So can we talk about some of my broader criticisms of the Great Wall now? We sure can. Okay. So I talked a little bit about the balance of the, of the general cards. Were I a cynic, and I'm not a cynic, but were I a cynic, I think I would follow the, the standards of some of our friends and immediately attribute this to lack of crowdfunding testing. Kickstarter bloat. In this case, game found because it's Awakened Realms, but same idea. 
where the where the the game found bloat, the crowdfunding bloat is real though, is in terms of a lot of the physical production of the Great Wall and a lot of other things. I could not help, but in my head, this is an unfair comparison in a number of ways. But we're, the, the comparison exists as follows. They're both Euro games designed by Eastern Europeans about Imperial China. I couldn't help but compare the Great Wall in my head to Terracotta Army. Terracotta Army published by Borden Dice, a retail game, as opposed to this published by Waken Realms through, through GameFound. You can get... Terracotta Army, which has a large number of very nice plastic minis and very clever ways to store them and deploy them over the course of the game. Uh, retail, no problem, somewhere around, you know, 50 American to 60 Canadian bucks if you're if you're getting discounts from online. The only way you get the Great Wall is through GameFound, and you're going to pay about 100 euros. And that's if you want no upgraded resources... No sun drop, no art book, no 53 expansion modules. The all-in version, you're right to shake your head, Walker. Oh, I looked at it before we started this. It's, yeah. It's quite ridiculous. Yeah, the all-in version is 340 euros. That's That was with the last round of, of crowdfunding. And let me tell you, the base game has already a whole bunch of different modules, none of which we've really liked. I've experimented with some of them. We tried the co-op version, which was not pleasant at yeah, all. Yeah, take all that interesting stuff we just said right. and throw it right Just out. chuck it right out the window. with the, Like, you're taking a semi-co-op game of interesting shared incentives and weird opportunities for either collusion or competition. And we tried the co-op version for two reasons. Number one, I was curious about, again, to, to see a couple of the modules that were included just in the base game. And number two, because we really like co-op games, and a lot of people do. It was very, very dull and procedural. You just have these, you just have these objectives to accomplish, and the objective, the the experience of playing to the objectives is basically like, okay, well, you're only going to be playing with a third of the game this round. It's like, uh, 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 all right, but a third of the game isn't much of a game, and it's not what we. It's like, no, no, it's what you're supposed to do. Okay. Yeah, you'll be collecting resources this round, and then you're going to lose them all. <laughs> yeah, more or less, and. There's this, that, the other, you know, a big plastic dragon, and you can take the very, very nice meeples that represent your soldiers that are are very effective and very evocative and very look look very nice on the table, and upgrade to the the mini version, which is now the default version in crowdfunding. You can't even get the meeple version anymore. Oh, which that's a I like the meeple version better. I like the meeple version too. I've never played with the miniature version. You have uh, the miniatures look very overwrought, you know, five different factions. So five different sculpts for everything. Uh, but so long story short, you cannot get the sub $120 euro version of the game because they've decided that the minis is the only way to go. Again, contrast that to a lot of other games. I don't know. I don't know what the costs are of Awakened Realms versus Board and Dice. I really don't. And it is often unfair to compare radically different games. But Board and Dice was able to make a retail version with lots of pretty miniatures, with lots of elaborate sculpting. And make it sub sixty dollars, right? Whereas here, so this on top of this, in terms of physical design, not necessarily in terms of mechanical design. Mechanical design, there's some glimmers of innovation here and there. A game like this, like the Great Wall, would never have been published twenty years ago. They weren't doing stuff like that with worker placement then. That's okay, but this could have been published in terms of physical design twenty years ago for thirty bucks, right? Yes. Uh, tokens for everything. You would have had a punch-out board, but you still get the, the cardboard assembled 
great wall towers. I'm just thankful they don't have plastic great wall pieces. Yeah, that would be. That would be. That would be. And surprising that they don't. It, I'm kind of surprised they don't. So you have all these plastic miniatures everywhere for the for the mini version, but at the end of the day, the Great Wall is still made out of cardboard, which demonstrates to me the effectiveness of the cardboard. <laughs> it looks great. It this does. game looks fantastic on the table. You're actually building these three different Great Wall sections, and you're putting archers yeah, a, on them. A couple and, of punch boards yeah. and wooden meeples get you a very nice table experience, and it kind of frustrates me. That the Great Wall is only available this way. There's lots of competition for medium-heavy worker placement games. And the fact that the Great Wall has decided to exist exclusively in this area of shenanigans is unfortunate. I like. I really enjoy the Great Wall. I'm looking forward to our next plays. Not with any expansion modules. I cannot recommend that people buy it. I really can't. I got no. it in trade, and that's the only way I could really recommend getting it. I agree. I 100%. I, I cannot tell anyone to buy this. But if you know anyone that has one, <laughs> yeah, then, absolutely, one hundred percent. Yeah, try to play it because yeah. it is a fun experience. And look, I get it. Some some games have to be, or at least really need to be, a slightly more elaborated experience. Again, say whatever you want about games like Gatefall, even like relatively cheaper ones, or games like Massive Darkness. Right, those need to have the figures to have the same kind of impact and, and, and presence. I understand, deep in my heart, why people didn't want the standee version of Gatefall to the same extent. Even Part of it is because the base gate, Gatefall game is reasonably priced, but on top of that, part of it is the spectacle. But the Great Wall doesn't need spectacle, and it looks great even without the spectacle, so why do we live in this world in which the only way to do it is this way? It, I find it a shame. I agree. It's funny when you're talking about Every one of these games has honor or shame, and he didn't also say that. And they also almost always have some sort of chi. Oh, yeah. Oh, geez, energy. Yeah, you're right. So this one, you know, also has that. Yeah. Just in case, you know, you thought that it didn't. And Don't worry. It's there. <laughs> At least they have the good sense to have it not be a resource that you can donate to the stockpile. <laughs> so I was like, here, borrow some of my chi. <laughs> At least they didn't do that. Let's be thankful. Yeah, it, it, it's a shame. I'm very glad I have it. I can't remember what I, what I did to, to what I gave up to trade for it, but it was, you know, it was on a lark, and I was very, very pleased with the result. Because again, Awakened Realms is not the kind of company you associate with quality Euro-style worker placement games. And yet, nonetheless, it's a solid entry into the genre. So I'm glad I have it. I'm looking forward to future plays, and I don't recommend that anyone buy it, because it's really expensive. 100% agree. Well, that is going to do it for this week. Thank you very, very much for joining us for So Very Wrong About Games. If you would like to get in touch with us, you can find all our information at sowronggames.com slash contact. There you can find a whole bunch of information about the Dramatis Personae, about our various policies, the swag canon, you name it. Search uh, search episodes for content, for mentions of specific games. It's a great place, and it's also a place with all our contact information. We read everything you send us, and we'll get back to you if we can. Thanks again very much for tuning in. We appreciate the time you've decided to spend with us, and we hope to see you again soon. Peace! You've been listening to So Very Wrong About Games, produced by Michael Walker and edited by Mark Bigney. Special thanks goes to What Does It Eat for generously allowing us to use their most excellent song, FOS, as our theme. You can find them at whatdoesiteat.com. You can reach us by email at soverywrongaboutgames at gmail.com or on Twitter at sowronggames. Thanks very much. See you next time. And always, try to be right, but remember you are so very wrong. <laughs>